you have your Bibles and you're at Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read the second portion, if you will, of the Ten Commandments. Last week, we considered uh, the first four commandments, uh, the ones that were dealing with our relationship with God, our vertical relationship with Him, that we would delight in God as ultimate, that we would see God as ultimate and that our hearts would, would rest in Him and rejoice over Him and rely on Him, that He would be the thing that grips our hearts. And this week, we're going to look at the last six commandments that deal with our relationships with each other, with one another, and how that delighting informs the nature and character of our living. So that's where we're heading, and we're going to read through these six commandments, starting in verse 12, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's take a moment and pray. God, as we come to this, your word, we pray that you'd be with us right now, that you would help press into our hearts uh, just your worth, your awesomeness, your ways, God, that that would do a good work in us and that it would bring change and transformation, conviction and comfort in the nature in which we live. So be with us, we pray, in the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing, the trusting, this your word we ask in Christ's name, amen. So the Ten Commandments helps us see a very big overarching reality. How we live reveals what we worship. How we live reveals what we worship. How we treat others displays what we delight in as ultimate. So the nature of our living is a window into our believing Jesus says as much when he speaks to these commandments in Matthew chapter 22. Consider this exchange. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Jesus summarizes this. Love God, and in your loving God, love others. Our delighting in God as ultimate is inextricably linked to our manner of living toward each other and other people. They are not to be compartmentalized. They are to live in harmony. Our first command is to delight in God as ultimate, and our second command is like it. It is to display the ultimate worth of God in the way we live with each other. Now that's where we're heading this morning and considering this. And my hope and my aim in this is that we would leave here wanting to display the worth of God 
in how we live, how we treat other human beings, that we would want to display the worth of God in that way. And so to work through that, just a little play on words as we move through this, is that the first thing I want us to see as we consider these is that our delighting informs our living. The nature and character and object of our delighting informs our living. Informs. Then, sort of a a mirroring back of that statement, we want to see as we look at these commandments that our living displays our delighting. How we go about living reveals what we are delighting in. And as we wrestle with that, and as we look at just how hard, if you remember from last week, those guardrails that we gave, one of them being the Ten Commandments are a lot harder than we think, as we realize that, we are going to find very quickly in our own hearts that we are sinful, that we are weak, that we don't do a great job of delighting and displaying. So what do we do? Well, that leads us to the third point. Our delighting and our displaying need the gospel. That as we look at this and as we consider them, what it looks like to honor your parents and to not murder and not steal and not commit adultery and not bear false witness and not covet, what those will do is drive us to see just how much we need the gospel in our lives, not just to be saved, but to live saved. So that's where we're heading. First is this. Our delighting informs our living. We want to delight in God as ultimate so that our living is as if God is really ultimate. And to consider that, we're going to do two things. We're going to first look at keeping God as ultimate and then living God as ultimate. First in keeping God as ultimate. Just a quick review of last week. We looked at the first four commandments that deal with our vertical relationship with God, and we saw, we tried to narrow it down into four key words that made like a little expression, a little statement, that those four commandments helped us see that only true, real worship is what God has in mind for His people, that only God is to receive true and real worship from us, the redeemed his people. That no one else, nothing else is ultimate. God is. Because that's just, it takes us back to what God has done in designing us and making us and creating us. He wired our hearts for worship. And worship is saying this thing, this whatever, this person, this who is ultimate. We're wired to have something ultimate. It's how God made us. And those four commandments helped us see that only God had the capacity to be ultimate. Only true, real worship. Yet what we worship, what we hold to as ultimate, will indeed inform, impact, and shape how we live in this world. Our values and our priorities for how we will live will be shaped by what rules our hearts. If gathering possessions in this world is ultimate in our hearts, our values and priorities will be fixed 
on gathering possessions. If pleasures to experience rule our hearts, then our lives will be spent seeking those pleasures to experience. Whatever rules the heart shows up in the life. Commandments 1 through 4 have a profound impact on our living out commandments 5 through 10. So much so, if we reject or replace the first four, injustice will occur in the last six. We will not treat what God has made with respect when we don't respect the God who has made. These are linked together. And we need to labor together to keep God as ultimate in our hearts. Secondly, we need to labor together to live God as ultimate. That we live out our lives believing and trusting that God really is ultimate. Now, can we do this perfectly? The answer is absolutely no. That's why there's a third point in this sermon. (laughs) But our laboring together, when we are gathered together, when we're sharing our lives together in community, when we're on mission together, is to keep God as ultimate and live God as ultimate. And the first thing that we can say in doing this is that we are collectively reminding and rehearsing to ourselves that God is sovereign. We have to keep that at the forefront of our heads and hearts, that our perspective on life in this world is set to be set to the reality that God is overall, everywhere, always. That there isn't anywhere ever in which God isn't over it all. God is over all, everywhere, always. And we want to live that way, we have to take that into consideration. And that means we see and believe that He is sovereign, that He is the rightful ruler over everything, that this is His show. It belongs to Him, not us. We're not the center of the universe, though we certainly are the center of God's affection. He made mankind very special. God is the center of it all. It's His show. He's the rightful ruler over all. Secondly, we need to say, see that He is gracious. That He has revealed His purposes and promises for mankind in history. Purposes to redeem through, through the person and work of Jesus. He doesn't obliterate us with His sovereignty. He doesn't squash us with His rule. He rescues sinners by becoming a human and living a life we could not live and dying a death that we deserve to give us something we could never gain on our own. We must see, yes, He is sovereign over everything. To live as God is ultimate, but we also must see Him as good, as gracious. And then thirdly, we need to see and rehearse to our hearts that He is immutable, meaning He does not change. Anything, anywhere, ever, that you would put in your heart as ultimate, that isn't God, will change. It will change. It will break. It will fail. It will depreciate. It will lose its luster. But guess who doesn't? God. 
God doesn't change in his sovereignty. God doesn't change in his goodness and grace. God doesn't change. So, as we're wrestling with Ten Commandments, we must keep in our heads and our hearts who God is. If we want to live, God is ultimate. Then we need to see what God has done or what God has made and treat that then with respect. That's the second aspect of living God is ultimate. Not only is God is sovereign, but mankind are image bearers. We keep in the forefront in our mind. God is over it all. This is his. He's good and he doesn't change. But we also keep in our mind that everyone else is an image bearer of God. Our perspective on this world, our lives, all of mankind is to be seen that we find our ultimate purpose and identity in God. And that which we find in creation is that mankind is image bearers of God. And therefore, if we want to go treating God as ultimate, then we will respect what God has made and what He has called special. Mankind is unique in all of the creation. There's nothing else like it. No one else gets to have the kind of relationship with God that mankind gets. No one else is imbued with the image-bearing of God. Yes, Psalm 19 tells us all of creation declares God is awesome. Mankind is a reflection of His image into this world. In our thoughts, our affections, our actions, our responsibilities, our roles, we bear His image. And because of that, we come to this realization, especially evident in the fact that these six commandments are holding this up in a very profound way, is that life that we have as humans, as mankind, is sacred. All life. All of it. All of its differences and complexities and, and, and backgrounds. Life is sacred because our lives, our human lives, reflect God's image. He is the author of life. David thinks of life and goes all the way to the womb and knows that God was the author there, but orients it and positions it not just in the womb, but all the way back before that, because God is eternal. He's not bound by time. Life originates in God, and God is above time. Amazing. And so we treat it with respect. Which is unfortunate, because what I'm about to say now is unfortunately political and controversial. And we'll probably, because I have two things to tease this out through, maybe provoke our defensiveness no matter where we fall. First, abortion. What are we doing? What are we doing? Abortion rejects God as ultimate, rejects God, and then brings unspeakable injustice onto people created in His image. What are we doing with this? Our newly inaugurated president released a statement commemorating and celebrating the decision made concerning Roe v. Wade, as if it's a good thing. We lost our minds. Since 1973, there have been some 60-plus million legal abortions in our nation. That's staggering. 
staggering. What are we doing? And now we couch this unspeakable evil. We couch it in this thought that it's connected to comprehensive health care for women. For every planned parenthood that receives millions upon millions of federal funding, there are 20 federally approved health care centers in those communities for every one. Furthermore, most communities have things like what we have in Nashua, in Real Options, which you find on Main Street, that, that provides all sorts of resources for, for people facing hard moments and decisions in life to, to resource them so that life is treated sacredly. It's not about women's health care. What are we doing? Within abortion statistics, there's also something even more staggering. The percentages and numbers for those in poor communities or in communities of minority people are overwhelming. That in some measure, these poor population blocks and minority groups have a disproportionate number of abortions. What is going on? Which takes us into the next aspect of treating life as sacred, is that not only do abortion statistics reveal that there's something broken and wrong in our society with respect to those who are poor or those who are in minority groups, but that imbalance and those disproportionate numbers continue on into imbalances of justice and care for others in our culture. There are disproportionate imbalances within education and economic opportunities, housing, criminal justice that create significant obstacles for people who are from poor groups or for people who are from minority groups. And these numbers are staggering. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Sanctity of life, which is being celebrated either last Sunday or this Sunday because the anniversary is January 22nd, which churches are bringing to attention and praying and, and holding up life as sacred, should care about the whole of life for the whole of people for all of life. We shouldn't look at these issues of abortion and social injustices as an either or. The political, frenzied, hurried nature of our day wants to make it an either-or. When we look at the Ten Commandments and we think of them as, hey, we are to delight in God, and as we do that, we are to display His ultimate worth in the way that we live with each other and care for one another, then it shouldn't be an either-or, but a both-and. Yet, what do we do? We let politics become the delight of our hearts and it shows up in the way we live. 
Christians should be leading the pace. Out front, when it comes to how we treat and care for all peoples. But instead, it seems as if we have pursued cultural power or cultural acceptance to the detriment of our witness to the ultimacy of God. Christians aren't to pursue cultural power because it is fleeting. And we aren't to seek after cultural acceptance because it is fickle. Rather, we are to live in such a way that displays the worth of God and how we care and treat our fellow image bearers, no matter if they shake their fists in hate and rejection to the very God they bear the image of. Delighting in God as ultimate shows up in how we live with each other on this earth. And how we live displays our delights. Moves us into the second point. Our living displays our delighting. There are six heart issues that display our delights that we have here. Six. So four dealing with our vertical relationships. Six that deal with our horizontal relationships here on this earth with fellow humanity. Let's move through these six and see them hopefully first as heart issues before they are ever actions. Commandment number five is honor your parents. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Simply put, this is an issue that is first a heart issue before it is an action. It is an attitude that also comes with action. There is a respecting of the authority structure that God has instituted in the family. There is an attitude of respect to that that then shows up in obedience in action. It is both attitude and action. And God, God's kind of smart. I don't know if you guys knew that. But God is actually kind of smart. He has created this family unit to be the essential relationship that tutors our hearts to ultimately submit to God. That we would respect God and follow after Him. That we respect our parents and follow after Him. And God has set into place in our world key institutions that help us understand this. The family, the church, the state. That we respect God and what He has put in place both in attitude and action. Now note, and this can be hard in many ways, it's not contingent upon what kind of parents you have. So kids, I'm sure all of you in here have wonderful, godly, perfect parents who never get frustrated with you or discipline you out of a place of impatience. But anyway, if you do, if they occasionally do that, it doesn't change. See, because this is really an extension of our delight, right? Our main motive to honor our parents, our main motive to honor our parents is because we are delighting in God as ultimate. So we take this and we see this role that God has built into this, how it is tutoring our hearts 
to the way we live out in our lives. Commandment number six, also another heart issue. You shall not murder. Verse 13. The word for murder is used in the Old Testament 47 times. And it means 47 times a person killing another person. It's never used in the context of war or capital punishment. And those are different topics for a different day. We're just simply looking at what this law, this commandment is stating. A person is to not murder another person. Now, we amped that up last week when we brought in what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. He took that action and he made it a heart issue. He made it a heart issue. He amped it up by exposing it as a heart issue before it is ever in an action. And so murder is really first and foremost a hate in our hearts. And so why we so desperately need to delight in God is ultimate is so that we would fight the hate in our hearts before we fight the people we hate. So the role of those first four commandments are to work in our hearts, otherwise we will give in to what is in our hearts and we will fight those who we hate. So we see here that our living displays what our delighting is in. The next commandment, commandment number seven, I know I'm moving through these quickly. You shall not commit adultery, verse 14. Now, before we want to micromanage this into a singular action, we need to first know that for all of them, they're heart issues. Therefore, it's not a single action that's in, in mind, though it includes many, many kinds of actions. Underneath all of this is a heart issue, and therefore, this is an umbrella commandment That includes any deviation from God's design for sex. That's right. Any deviation from it. And just like hate that wants to rule our hearts, wants to show up in the actions against our fellow people, so does lust want to rule in our heart and seek fulfillment in action. In that same sermon, Jesus made murder a heart issue, he made this also a heart issue. We don't get to pick which sexual sins are bad. They all are, and they're all heart issues. So to fight that action, we delight in God as ultimate first in our hearts because that action is associated to what is seeking to rule our hearts. We cannot Live these six out without clinging to the first four as if they're life for us. The next commandment, commandment eight, verse 15, you shall not steal. What is fascinating about this commandment is that it covers a wide range of things. We think of that word steal and it's like, I'm not going to steal the $20 out of my parents' wallet. I'm not going to steal the candy bar out of the convenience store. I'm not going to steal the stocks and funds, etc., from so-and-so's company. We think of it in terms of that, right? Well, here, it really applies broadly across societal structures, and as, such as economics and commerce and business and justice, that you wouldn't steal in those big, comprehensive ways also. 
And later in, in Exodus chapter 22, we find that there's even restitution, that those who still have to pay back double built into the law that God gives his people. Exodus chapter 22, verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. This is a serious thing that isn't just simply your goods, but the entirety of your culture. So again, this is so much bigger than a micromanaged checklist of a few kinds of things that we avoid. This is a way of living. Our delighting informs our living, and our living works backwards and reveals what we are delighting. Then we move into commandment 9. You shall not bear false witness. Verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This carries with it both legal and relational applications. Meaning we are to respect our justicism, justice systems, excuse me for conflating those two words, justicisms. Uh, we are to respect our justice systems with fruit and, and truth. And we are to respect our relationships with honor. So what does that mean? No perjury, but also no gossip. Now, most of us are probably going to be okay with the no perjury thing, right? It's easy. seems easy enough. Although we've maybe never been in a courtroom and been staring at a judge. But by and large, we probably feel like, ah, we'll be pretty good with that one. Gossip? Defaming the name of someone else to prop yourself up? No, this... this goes deeper and wider than we see. There's no way of micromanaging these commandments into singular actions. And then last commandment, commandment number 10. You shall not covet. Verse 17. You shall not covet. This commandment is a bookend of the Ten Commandments. Both the first commandment and the last commandment are really ultimately heart issues. Therefore, making all of the commandments in between them, first and foremost, heart issues before they are actions. The idea of covet, it means to have an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something. It is a heart issue, capping the whole of the Ten Commandments. And it is a heart issue that we have seen played out in Scripture, in history, and in our own lives. You can look back into Genesis 3 and you see covet before an action. Eve coveted the fruit before she ate. You can look forward into James and you see instructions given to us about the nature of the way that sin works in our lives. And what does James 1, 14 and 15 say? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, it's a heart and then an action. And that action brings wreckage. The Ten Commandments hold up to us. Our great need to delight in God is ultimate if we want to display the ultimate worth of God in the way that we live. And that really brings us then to our third point as we move through that fairly quickly. But the whole point is to help us see that this, this boundary, if you remember from last week, the guardrails that we have for the Ten Commandments or the law of God or His righteous standard 
are that we need to see that these are good. They're not bad. They're good. But they're harder than we think. And that drives us into the third and fourth guardrail. That, that Jesus fulfills them and, dry, and the guardrail drives us then to the one who fulfills them for us. And that brings us to this last point. As we consider the ten as a whole. As you think back over last week and, and the things that we've looked at this week. It, it should be fairly, if you're honest with yourself, it should be fairly easy to see that if you break one, you break them all. And if you break them in your heart, it doesn't really matter how modifying you are to your behavior if your heart is off. We need something. We need rescue. We need one who has done what we could not do and gives what we could not gain. That our delighting and our displaying are in desperate need. And God in His infinite grace and mercy for us has supplied for that need in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you are like me and read and wrestle and consider these beyond the scope of a micromanaged single event or action, and you quickly are facing your failure. You recognize that you are a failure. What do we do about our failure? The answer is we run to Christ and we rely on Him. We run to Christ and we rely on Him. Our hearts will do something to us. They will condemn us. Our own hearts will condemn us because we will fail. Every single heart in here will condemn itself. So what do we do? We run to the God who is greater than our hearts. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. He knows all of the murderous thoughts that you've had in your heart. He knows all of the lust. He knows all the coveting. He knows all the gossip. He knows it all. Can't hide it. And in that knowledge, perfect, full, complete knowledge, no hiding, he still sends his son to rescue you. If we knew all the stuff that lurked around in our dark corridors in our rooms, we are in our hearts, we would not be in this room. <laughs> Yet he provides for us in the gospel. He sends us one all the way down into our brokenness to rescue us. And as we then open up God's word and we're quickly reminded like we hopefully are this morning that we have not met to his standard, that the law is then to drive us to Jesus, not by merit of a mountain we climb or a ladder we scale, but through faith and trust in him and him alone. Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian. Old translation said tutor. Until Christ came 
Why? In order that we might be justified by faith. When Jesus came in the fullness of time, he did for us what we could not do to give what we could not gain. And all of that time period leading up to what Jesus would do, the law was driving us to see our need for what Christ would give. That we can't do this of our own good. That we need Jesus' good for us. And then that would then lead us then to rest in, rejoice over, and then rely upon Jesus to delight in God as ultimate and to display that God is ultimate in our living. That we rehearse to our hearts often and daily and deeply the truth of Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh and the brokenness of your heart, the sin of your heart, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did He forgive all of our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And how did He cancel that debt? This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our means of delighting in God as ultimate and living as if God is ultimate, are found in Jesus who did it for us and gives to us that which we could never do for ourselves or gain on our own. Therefore, any hope moving forward of delighting in God's word as if it really truly reveals to us his gracious, overwhelming, awesome character and ways in which we are to live. If we want to do that, we must do that through Jesus, trusting in him, relying upon him, holding him up into our own heads and our own hearts and to our lives and doing that together. Then we are able to look at God's law, not as a duty we buckle under, but as a delight we soar with. And it informs our lives and shapes them as reflections to the ultimate worth of God in a broken, dark, sin-stained world. No, it will not be easy. (laughs) Easy has nothing to do with it but it will be real, filled with great wonder and hope as we live out lives that delight in God and display His worth. The Ten Commandments reflect the character of God. He is holy. The Ten Commandments reflect and reveal the inability of man. We are sinful. The Ten Commandments drive us to the sufficiency of Jesus who is able to save us to the uttermost. And the Ten Commandments in Christ become to us the lights we get to display in the way we live. May that be so. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would bless our hearts, our lives right now with just your profound and immense grace and mercy. If we reflect on the manner in which we live, it's very easy and quickly um, revealed to us just how short we have fallen. Our hearts are going to be working in overdrive to condemn us. Oh God, would your grace reveal to us the nature of your love for us in Christ, the sufficiency of his life, death, and resurrection, and the hope that we have that his power is at work in our weakness. 
And may our lives in incremental and big, profound waves reflect more and more and more your ultimate worth. May our hearts delight in you. May we look at your word and not buckle under its weight, but soar with worship and adoration and transformed living. May it be so through faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.